Good morning. It is nice to know that though I live in a new state, some things never change. It doesn't matter how full a room is, not one person wants to sit in the very front row. That's all. New Year's Day, right? This is the first time I am ever going to have a chance to preach this passage on this actual New Year's Day, though I've preached this passage as my first sermon of every year for a decade. And I don't have any intention of stopping. This is sort of, if if you want to call it this, this is sort of the New Year's resolution of the Scripture, As we go through Romans, uh, Paul's most exhaustive uh, theological treatise, uh, he comes to chapter 12 and he launches into a shift from the theology to the practice. And that's where we find ourselves. What is that which Paul understands through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be the, the founding centerpiece for our launching forward from what we know to who we are. We make many New Year's resolutions between not eating certain foods to working out more to reading a certain number of books to being a better person to whatever we come up with. And frequently we find that, that there's only a minimal level of actual desire to follow through on those things. And that's why the busiest month at a gym is January. And then by about January 20th, you're back to all the people who were there in November. That's just the way it goes. So what does it take then, if this is to be our New Year's resolution, what does it take then for us to not just have a a modicum of commitment toward what the scripture is going to call us to? What does it take for us to launch wholeheartedly into it? The answer is really simple. And that is to understand all of what comes before chapter 12, verse 1 in the book of Romans, which is impossible. It's a simple answer, impossible to do. So let's read Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then let's step back and take a look at it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. First off, there's a note to be made here. When Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, he's using what would be archaic English language all the way back to 1995. (laughs) Where when I went through high school, to talk about people in general, you used the masculine pronoun. 
And that's what's going on here. The word doesn't mean, I appeal to you men and only men and not you women, right? It's not what it means. When he says, I appeal to you brothers, he's saying, I I appeal to you all of you whose faith is in Jesus. Men, women, you you read through Colossians, he's going to say there's no distinction as far as your position in Christ, whether you're a slave or free, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter what it is, your position in Christ is the same. So when he appeals to us as followers of Christ, he's appealing to all of us. So that's an important side note, just so there's no confusion But he says, I appeal to you, therefore. And the oldest, worstest, most awfulest joke, and yes, I made up two of those words, that pastors use is that when you see the word therefore, you must ask what it's there for. And I use it because it's great. I love terrible jokes. I love jokes that make you all go, oh, that guy. but it sticks with us. So why is the word therefore there? How how do you come to that answer? Really what that word means, as we've said before, is that because of what's already happened, a result comes out of it. So what has already happened? Well, let's walk through Romans really quickly because like I said, if we don't understand the point of Romans 1 through 11, we cannot understand or have any deep conviction as to how we will live out Romans 12, 1 and 2. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 is impossible to live out short of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But how do we even begin that process if we don't understand 1 through 11? So let's look at just a few different verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The first point in the book of Romans is that you and I and everybody in this room and everybody in this town and everybody in this county and everybody in this state and everybody in this country and everybody in this world is in the exact same position. We are all sinners. Broken, broken sinners. Regardless of how nice we look on the outside. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Move over to Romans 5, 8 and 9, or 6 to 8, or 6 to 10, really, but we're going to look at 8 to 10. Romans 5, 8 to 10. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But when we were enemies of God, he died for us so that we wouldn't remain enemies of God. So all have sinned, but God gives us an opportunity that while we were still his enemies, he puts us in a position where we could be made his ally, and not even just his ally, but his friend, and not even just his friend, but his son, adopted children, made heirs with Christ while we were still his enemies. That's what he did for us. So much more now that we're no longer his enemies. Won't he do even more for us is the point? Go from Romans 5 to Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin, you and I are all sinful. The wages of my sin, the payment, the right payment of my sin is death, my death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you and I have done the job that gets paid in death. But God offers us life through his son. So we were all sinners, but while we were his enemies, he died for us and made, us, made a way for us to no longer be his enemy. And while that was going on, he gives us a free gift, not a gift that the enemy works for, but a gift that the enemy has just given. Romans 8.1 because of all that, there is therefore, because of what God has done, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you ever metaphorically were to have to stand before that new judge in the room, you would know that you are not convicted. You are not condemned. Because your payment of death because of your sin has already been paid by Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, which means what for those who aren't? That there still is, right? That, that's the, just the logic of it. Moving on from there, you go to Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, like we said before, for the same Lord is the Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the setup of Romans 12. There's more to it. Romans 7 says that all of us who are believers, though there's no condemnation, talked about in 8, all of us who are believers still sin. We're still broken. We are still not yet perfected. Romans 9 talks about God's sovereign choice in what he's doing. Romans 10 talks not only about this, but the bringing of salvation to the Jews and the Greeks. Romans 11 talks about how God, because the Jews rejected him, removed them from the position they were in to graft in us as Gentiles, us as non-Jews, so that we'd be, we could become part of his family. And so therefore, I urge you, brothers, I, I prompt you, I exhort you, I beg you to do something. Because of all that God has done, what does Paul beg the believers to do? He begs us to do an impossible task. Offer your body, not just your physical body, but yourself as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice is is an object, a thing that gives every ounce of what it is to the benefit, glory, or positional pointing of somebody else. An animal that is sacrificed is killed till it's dead, till it has no more life, no more chance of life till nothing of its, its essence is left. It's all handed over to this thing to which it is sacrificed. So you and I, in like terms, are to offer over every ounce of what makes us us to Christ. 
while somehow we're still living. This isn't a physical suicide death sort of thing. This is a killing of all that is your being, your essence, that which makes you, you, that which makes me, me, over to him so that he could use it to his glory how he chooses. And how does he choose to do that? Don't know. I beg you, I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of God, because of the mercy he's giving us, offer your bodies, yourself, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. But that word, it's accurate. I'm not saying that it's not accurate. I'm not saying that in any respect. But but it carries a deeper meaning than just this ethereal, spiritual, abstracted idea, which is what we have a tendency to do. Why do we have a tendency to abstract this and and dematerialize it into this, this nothingness out there? It's really simple. Because if we can abstract it enough, we can follow it in principle without having to actually do anything. Right? I am a lazy person, not wanting to change who I am, liking the muck and mire in which I sit. I don't really want it to be different. Different is hard. Different takes work. Different makes me have to make different choices. So we have a tendency to say, if we can abstract it just enough, we don't actually have to do anything. But you're not paid to know Greek, right? The word here that says spiritual worship is the word logikos, from which we get the word logic. It more rightly, in the use of normal Greek from this time period, would mean logical or reasonable or expected results. So think about it in that terms. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. The reasonable thing for you and I to do, the reasonable thing for me to wake up in the morning saying I'm going to do is to offer all of who I am to Jesus. Why? Because he saved me from death. And didn't just save me from death, but gave me life that can't ever be taken away. A life that not only exists, but flourishes. It has no pain. It has no brokenness. It experiences no sadness. And offering ourselves wholly to him is the only reasonable thing to do because of what he's done. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, Bethel body, Brock, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable response to who God is. But it begs the question, if it says, and I said that for Chris's benefit, by the way, because he hates that phrase when used in the sense that says, makes you want to ask. 
Just so you know, if you never understood why he says that, begging the question is a logical fallacy. Saying that it makes you want to ask is a totally different thing. And in our idiom, we use it. But I've been waiting for weeks to sneak that in somewhere for Chris, and now seems the right time. But it makes us ask, what is worship? If you think about worship in these terms, it actually makes this passage make more sense. Worship is our right response to who God is. And if that's what worship is, it means it's not. You ever heard the term that the church went through what we called the worship wars in the 90s and 2000s and even into the 2010s? And really what people meant was people didn't like the kind of music that other people liked, so we were at war with each other because it was worship wars. We dubbed it worship wars because it sounded like it was more valuable and it was something worth standing on when really what it meant was I like or don't like guitars. That's really what it meant. So we had worship wars, which were not right responses to who God is, but it was styles of music. A styles of music can be a right response to who God is. The way we sing, what we sing, is a right response to who he is. But so is looking at his word. So is shaking the hand of your friend. So is caring for the people around you. So is looking out for those you maybe don't even know yet. That is a right response to who God is, which is our worship. And that's a reasonable thing. This is a right, reasonable response to who he is. I appeal to you, brothers, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. Do not. And just so you know, this is where it gets hard. All of it coming before this is like the preamble. And this is where it becomes a daily, grinding, difficult thing if we try to do it on our own. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Two passive verbs. We've talked about verbs before. They are of utter importance as we try to understand Scripture. But nouns are of utter importance as well. So are genitives. If you don't know what a genitive is, look it up and know this. The Reformation was started by the different use of a genitive noun. So if you love language and you love English and you love grammar, you can know that the whole Reformation by Martin Luther stemmed on a genitive out of Romans. And if you don't care about that, that's all right. (laughs) Passive verbs. It means that this conforming or transforming is happening to us. We are not doing it It is being done to us. Do not be conformed, which means something outside of you is trying to conform you. What is that? What makes sense? That it's the world, right? Do not be conformed by the pattern of this world or to the pattern of this world, which if you're going to copy the pattern of something, that would seem to be the thing that is conforming you. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but... 
be transformed, have transforming done to you by the renewing of your mind, which means what? By knowing more information, right? No. Sorry, that was totally a trick. It seems like to us, in the way that we use words, in the way that we think, when we think the renewing of our mind, we think the renewing of our intellect and knowledge. And that's an aspect of it. Because if you don't have a base of knowledge and understanding and information about the scripture, you have nothing upon which to base what you're doing, right? But that is not all that is meant here when, they say the re- when he says the renewing of your mind. This is the changing of our thought processes. The restructuring of the the thinking that we do. Let's just listen to a little bit of one of Jesus' sermons where he just blitzes through all sorts of earth-shattering stuff and we're only gonna look at an aspect of it. Not even half. It's out of Matthew chapter five. If you ever want to read a passage where it's just Total life change all the time. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's Jesus delivering either a sermon or a compilation of things that he said that Matthew puts together for us uh, to the people. And he starts by saying everything that we do is backwards. That's called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble, which is not how our world tells us to function, right? He then moves on, and he has a whole list of topics that he uses the same phrases in. You have heard that it was said. You had been taught in the past, but I tell you something different, deeper, something bigger, stronger, harder. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. 31, 32, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 34 and 35, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth. 38 and 39, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All of these different things that these people were taught, Jesus is shifting, inverting almost. It requires of them a change in their thought process, not just holding new information. This is a paradigm shift of how we view the world, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. This is your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed, changed by the world into the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the changing of your thought processes. That's the New Year's resolution. He gives us a next step in that, which we don't even have time to deal with. We don't have time to deal with this whole passage or this whole two verses in general, but he finishes it by saying that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When our character is set right before God, when our thought processes is set before God in such a way that we are making the choices on the priorities and purposes that he would direct us to, then we will be able to test the things that go on, to discern the will of the Lord, the direction that the Lord is leading. This is why you elect elders for the church to say to them, we trust you to search out the direction the Lord has for us. We don't elect elders to make good choices. We don't elect elders to make good processes. We don't elect elders to do any of those things. We elect elders to put them in a position to help the church move forward by discerning the will of God because these are men whose character you trust. And when you trust their character, you put them in a position where they can move forward. You see in them men who love God, who set aside the things of the world. You see in them men who have wisdom from the Holy Spirit. You see in them men who are transformed by their minds, by the renewing of their minds, so that they can understand where God is leading, so that as God leads through them, our whole body moves in the direction that we're supposed to. That's the role of an elder. Elders are not supposed to be process makers, protocol managers. They're supposed to be men who lead us as a body toward Christ, toward being more and more transformed, toward understanding his will for us as a particular entity in Marquette, more and more to see where we diverge off those paths so that they can lead us back and say, no, this is the direction. This is the path that we must be on with gentleness and love so that every year we step back and we say, God, by your mercies, because of your mercies, I want to present my body as a living sacrifice. I want to give all of who I am over to you because that is the only reasonable response that I can have to what you've done. So don't let me be conformed to this world. Let me be transformed by, by the renewing of my mind as you change the way I think. As I submit myself to you, he changes us so that our thought processes are different. Then we will follow him rightly. Then we will be a body, a people, a family 
who follows him the way that we're supposed to. Please understand that I have not been here long enough to be standing here telling you, boy, you all are terrible at this and I'm trying to... That's not the point. The point is that this is what the passage says. And for 10 years, I have studied this passage to preach on it, which is a whole different level of studying a passage. And in year 10, I still found myself struck by the depth to which I have not yet gone. So please don't at all hear me standing here saying, I am good and you are bad. I might actually be more saying, I am bad and you are better. Because I know my heart. And the Holy Spirit knows yours as well as he knows mine. So let's put ourselves in a position where we ask him to not let us be conformed, but to be transformed so that as we offer who we are to him, we find that that is reasonable and we love it. That will be Paul's New Year's resolution for us in 2023. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your love for your life. We thank you for gifting us your spirit while we were your enemies and for giving us a place in your family. Lord, we ask that we would be men and women who individually see ourselves shifted more and more to the image of your son. We thank you for granting us life and we pray that we would follow you rightly. We do love you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.